He is risen. Hallelujah! Thank you, DJ and the team, for leading us to worship together. It's wonderful to have Gavin lead us through even Luke's Gospel and Romans chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to stand again and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. In honor of God's Word, I want you to stand. We're going to read it together. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. And if you're, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to church, you're new to this whole deal, there's actually a blue pew Bible so that you don't have to take my word for it. You can actually read for yourself. You look in the index and find the book of Hebrews. We're in the, ch- in the 12th chapter. And I'm going to read these first two verses. And this is, this is the very word of God inspired of God, His Word for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we ask that in these next few moments, as we dwell upon Your Word, as we have our our attention reoriented away from the things of this world and oriented to the things concerning You and Your glory, I pray that you would come and meet us very powerfully. I pray that for those who are strangers to you, strangers to your grace, who do not know you, and who think that you have then no care or no interest in them, I pray for those people that they would maybe even for the very first time have their eyes opened. I pray that their sin that has blinded them would be broken and that they would be given sight. I pray that their hearts that have up until now been hardened, maybe like a rock towards you, resistant, unmoving, and I pray that you would melt their hearts and even give them new hearts, even a heart of flesh, a heart of a heart that beats for you. Lord, we thank you that in this congregation, even now, every tribe and tongue and nation is represented. We have so many people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different nations. And Lord, we do praise you. You have brought all of these people together in this moment, even to worship your own dear Son, the Risen One. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us, that your Spirit would work in this city, that your Spirit would work in this province and in this nation, that there even beginning today would be a great turning to you, a turning away from sin and folly, from madness and wickedness and transgression, and they would turn away from those in repentance and flee to Jesus Christ, His shed blood and His righteousness, and believe upon Him and so be saved. Father, we ask that You would do that. We know You're able to. We pray, Lord, that in the midst of judgment across this land and across this world, that You would nevertheless remember mercy. And we ask that this morning, on this Easter Sunday morning, this Resurrection Sunday, that You would remember mercy even toward us now, 
Come and meet us, we pray, for we ask this in the risen Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's been over two millennia, and we're still looking to Jesus. It is 2022, Anno Domini, the Latin for A.D., which means not after death, but the year of our Lord. It's actually a statement, our dating of 2022 A.D. is a stating of the fact that Jesus continues to be alive. He is alive right now. He is, as we heard in the liturgy, He is interceding for us. We can look to Jesus today, even though He is unseen to our eyes, we can look to Him because He is nevertheless living. He is alive right now. About 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the writer to the Hebrews told those folks to keep looking to Jesus. You know what the saying, how the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And I think that often if you're a churchgoer, if you're familiar with the things of the Bible, then these things can be so familiar. We can be familiar with the idea that of looking to Jesus so familiar that we actually might not be looking to Jesus. We might be looking to the past. We might be looking for an experience. But looking to Jesus might then not be as obvious as it first appears. So what does it mean? What does it mean to look to Jesus? Well, even on a basic level that anybody can understand, it would mean then looking to Him to be near Him, to to keep pace with Him, to be eager to get to Him quickly when we're far away, and, and just eager as well to cling closely to Him when He is near. It is to look. And is to keep on, to still be looking to Jesus forever and ever. That is what a Christian is. Someone who looks to Jesus forever. Now the first witnesses of the resurrection, they were looking to Jesus. The women who had the spices and the the ointments, they were keeping pace regarding where Jesus was. You, you see it there, even at the end of Luke 23. The women who had come, verse 55, with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. They were keeping pace with where Jesus was. They noted where his body was laid. And that's how they discovered the empty tomb. They were looking That's why Peter ran to the tomb. Because he was looking to find Jesus. That's how then later on in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, these men on the road to Emmaus, they discovered Jesus when he revealed himself. And they said in verse 35 of Luke 24, they had recognized Jesus in the breaking of bread. Mary, Mary met a man in John 20, it's recorded, that met a man that she thought was the gardener. And she asked him, where is Jesus, John 20 and verse 15. That's how Thomas, you remember doubting Thomas? He was so startled to find Jesus alive with the scars on his hands and the wound in his side Yet Jesus was glorified, and Jesus had said, He said to Thomas, He said, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. 
Well, why? Why would he respond in that way? Because deep down he was looking to Jesus and he found him. And this is how 500 people at once saw Jesus alive after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And those who look to Jesus, they're reminded, even as he said in Luke 24, verse 44, you can turn there and just read it with me, Luke 24 and verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about the whole Old Testament. All those things must be fulfilled, and they're written about him. And then in verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. He opened their minds. And what was the content of the Scriptures that he opened their mind to understand? He opened their mind to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That was the content. Then, just as Gavin said regarding Peter and how Peter was restored, Jesus was going to pray for him, and then he said, go, go then, minister, tell your brothers in a similar way. He said, verse 47 of Luke 24, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. That, that means not just you were witnesses of these things, but you are witnesses of these things. They continued to be witnesses to these things in the present. Why? Because Jesus was still alive. They're His continued witnesses. And so, they looked to Him, and they witnessed Him, and they saw Him then, even in verse 51, they, they, they blessed he, when He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They saw it all. And verse 52, the end of the Gospel of Luke says, they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple blessing God. By that point, Jesus was unseen. But He was still alive and they still worshipped Him. Because he was risen from the dead. Those are the first witnesses on that first Easter Sunday. When we come then to Hebrews 12, then the writer to the Hebrews says there's a whole cloud of witnesses. There's always been this cloud of witnesses reaching back to the witness of creation through the witness of Abel, through the witness of the patriarchs, through the witness of Moses, David, and all the prophets. And all of these witnesses are testifying to Christ. They point toward the person and work of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the one who in the fullness of time was born of the Virgin Mary, and yet He is eternally begotten of the Father. These witnesses continue to testify about the risen Christ, the living Christ. And it says then in Hebrews 12 that they actually surround us. Therefore, since, back in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, they surround the believer of the first century, they surround the believer of the 21st century. There are all these these saints, all these believers who are, who, are, who are, in this sense, unseen and yet alive. They cheer us on. They urge us on. And they cheer us on saying, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. 
all of these Old Testament saints. Well, why do they urge you to lighten your load? Why do they say this? Well, because they had to lighten their load. They had to lighten their load. They had to let go of their sin. They had to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Abraham had to lay aside his lies. Moses had to lay aside his anger. David had to lay aside his lust. All of them had to lay aside their sin. And that's why then they can bear witness to this need to lay these things aside and to keep on believing in the true and living God. Even in Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus had to remind the two men on the Emmaus road. He said, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the witness, the cloud of witnesses. And they all urge us to forsake sin and to look to Jesus. So that's, that's kind of like the base message on Easter Sunday. Not only that he is risen, but that you then are to turn from your sins and believe in the risen one who actually demands all of you and puts you all under obligation to turn to him. There's no kind of, well, take it or leave it. But for many of you here, yes, you are those who have turned from your sins and you're looking to Jesus but then this, this writing in Hebrews, this, this is then this further urging that these witnesses offer. Namely, this call where the writer says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I mean, you can get that metaphor, right? You know, it's pretty easy to pick up, the idea of, of a running metaphor. You know, we, we understand the idea of a race, but did you know that, that you know, even this, even with this kind of crowd or this cloud of witnesses, they're not metaphorically surrounding us, but they're actually spiritually alive. Jesus said that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, referring to the Old Testament when God said, I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's still their God. God's still their God today. Abraham is alive, spiritually speaking, awaiting the resurrection of his earthen, you know, maggot-eaten, dust-scattered remains. And Jesus had said that in Mark 12, to remind his critics that God raises the dead. So when these spiritually alive witnesses urge us on, we ought to listen. We ought to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Well, that moves us from these witnesses to, to then being a runner. Now, on Easter Sunday, it's the year of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ, 2022. I think, my guess is, like, this is the... This is the Kind of the first, is it post-COVID Easter? People are still getting COVID. Uh, people I know, guys come down with COVID. But I think all of us, all of us have had recently, if not in the last two years and even in the last two weeks, have had crisis, have had trauma, have had difficulty. So you, yeah, sure, you've run. But you've also jogged, and then you've walked, and then you've stumbled, and then you've sat down on the curb. I mean, that's kind of how I felt last two years been. I spent a lot of time sitting on the curb trying to catch my breath. Some of you, maybe you've been going backwards. And nevertheless, at this point in the marathon, you're, you're struggling to go on. There might be a few of, here, few of you here that are so buoyant and everything's moving along lovely. But my guess is for almost all of us, 
You're actually at that point of struggling in the marathon to keep going. You think that you can't do this anymore. You start to dream about what it would be like to drop out of this race. You get angry with yourself that you ever signed on to this race to begin with. Maybe you get sad because you know you're in the race, but you have no idea how you're going to finish it. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to get beyond this? And, and I know you. And I know me. And that's what we're experiencing. So then, so then you come on an Easter Sunday, and you're looking for something to make you feel good. And you're like all those, you know, you've seen them, those exhausted triathletes. And they, they run by, and they, or they stumble by, and they grab that water bottle, and they just crush it into their face. And most of it falls on the ground. And then they grab another one, and they just crush it again. Because they're desperate. It, it doesn't look pretty. It, it's just pretty desperate. And there are many of us right now that are in that desperate situation. And you're just about to give up. You're just about to give in. You're just about ready to quit. To to quit your marriage. To, To quit your church. To quit the faith. When you come here on Easter Sunday wanting something, but probably a little bit suspicious that it won't change your mind, and you feel like you're that amateur triathlete whose legs are wobbling as they see others striding by them, striding by, and and your legs aren't working anymore. And the sight of those others doesn't seem to encourage you. It makes you want to give up. You don't care what the witnesses think anymore. You don't care who sees you fall. But then somebody somebody comes to you and they simply say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And, And it seems too simple, really. But it's about all you can bear is to look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you discover something that actually defies the marathon picture. It actually blows up the metaphor. It upends it. Because what we have then in Hebrews 12 and verse 2, we have the writer telling us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This means, first off, that Jesus is the founder or the author of our faith when we look to him. That means that Jesus, we could say maybe in a modern way, he's the creative director of our faith. He comes up with the idea. He implants it within you at the right time and at the right place. He takes responsibility for our faith. And he gives this faith then as a gift Jesus then is that founding donor of that faith gift. He's the one who is the author of our faith. But not only that, Jesus refuses to have have you do anything that he won't do himself. This is one of the remarkable things about Jesus, contrary to every other religion. Jesus will not have you do anything that he won't do himself. So if you're called to live your life for your heavenly Father in obedient faith, then he will do it first and he will do it best. And so the word for founder, he is the founder of our faith, the word for founder is a Greek word, archagos. And, and for me, it is one of the most precious words in the whole Bible. The archagos is a scout. 
or a pioneer even better, or what we might call a trailblazer. So it's more than just what we might think of a founder as the founder of a company or a founder of a school. It's more than the author of a book. It is someone who has gone before. And it means then for you, if you're here and you're embarking on this faith journey, you're on this, starting this marathon of faith, this pilgrim's progress, if you will, then you're not entering into some undiscovered country. It's not like, oh, well, this, nobody's been here before. No, you're not going over terrain that is unknown or a track that has never been driven. You are going following after Jesus' own Archegos work. It's his own pioneering, his own scouting, his own trailblazing efforts. And so there is no step, no stride of experience that you will know in faith that Jesus has not already experienced in faith toward his heavenly Father. Somebody's been there before. Have you been on a a punishing, exhausting, tedious, tiring journey of faith in these last two years? Like, very likely you have. Well, Jesus sinlessly endured all of those difficulties in faith. The road filled with all the losses of the world, whether loss of job or loss of health or loss of, a, loss, of, uh, loss of status or loss of dreams or loss of love or loss of life. All of these, all of these, these tracks, these lanes, these roads, Jesus has experienced sinlessly in the loss of his own life on the cross. He's experienced them all. He felt it all, even as the wrath of God's justice took away his life as the penalty for the sin, not his own, the sin of others that he substituted himself for. The sins of folks like you and folks like me. Yes, Jesus is the founder. He is the author. He is the archagos. And it's one thing to start. It's one thing to start, but what about the finishing? And and that's what I think many people here, they're struggling with. Maybe you've made a start, but it's the finishing that's getting to you. How am I ever going to make it through, you ask yourself. But then we look to Jesus. He is the perfecter of our faith. He is The Greek word is the teleotes. He is the teleotes who said on the cross to telestai, it is finished. It is finished, John 19.30. He's the finisher who said it is finished. It was not merely his faith, though. Of course, as the teleotes, as the finisher, he was faithful unto death. He was faithfully obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2.8. But he finished it all. He finished, firstly, his active duties as the Son of Man, and secondly, he completed the receptive penalties as the Man of Sorrows. He did them both, the duties and the penalties in substitution for sinners. He did it all. The result, though, then, is when we look to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith, not just what he's done, we see him as the finisher, our faith then is not left open-ended. It's not left open-ended. It isn't, and this is a mistake in many churches, it isn't, oh, God converts us, and then we kind of do our own thing. Then we're on our own. To live this life out. Yeah, oh yeah, God converts us, but then we we are the ones that kind of got to make this happen. No. No, He brings us across the finish line. He 
carries us along to get there. We relinquish ourselves to Him and we lean on Him. And though our feet may tread the ground, He does the heavy lifting, even carrying us across to finish our faith race. That's what it means for Jesus to be the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, at this point, the focus, ironically, from this passage has been about us. It's focus on us. It's about our race, our journey, our trial. But you see, we're actually helped a lot more by not looking at ourselves, but by looking to Jesus. The Greek word in Hebrews 12, 2 could be translated looking not just to Jesus, but into Jesus. By contrast, even in the last year, last two years, it's just a real easy diagnostic question to ask yourself. Just ask yourself, what is my mind into? What is it? You can can make, make the list. Maybe the list isn't long, but it's a dominant percentage of all that your mind is into. Is your mind fully into your pain or into your problems or into your sores or into your sins? If that's the case, then you'll stumble. You need to lift your eyes and be looking into Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, I've used it many times, his, his concept referring to this idea of looking into Christ. He, he said, it's as if then you enter into a warehouse, or, or he called it a storehouse, a, a storehouse, a warehouse of resources and supplies. That's what it means to look into Christ. I, I like to think of it as looking, to, looking into Christ is kind of like the first time you walk into Costco. Right? The first time, and you look around and you're like, all of this is available to me. Of course, you've got to pay for it, but that's the difference. But it's just like, wow. And yet, how infrequently do we look to Christ like that? We think that Jesus hardly has just barely anything to help us with. Instead of all, all the all the riches in heavenly places are actually resident in Him. That's where they're stored. They're in Him. So the first thing that we see when we look to Jesus is His belief. That's, that's, you're thinking about, you're not just thinking about faith. You're thinking about Jesus' faith, if we can put it that way. Jesus' belief in the joy at the finish line. Think about it. What Jesus thought, it's His joy at the finish line. Look at Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, in other words, set in front of Him, at the finish line, the joy that is at the finish line, Jesus believed that there was joy in finishing his mission. Happiness. Delight. What is this joy then for him particularly? It was to enjoy his Father's love. To to bring the Father glory. To bring many to glory, even the adopted sons of the Father. And, And Jesus was so confident And delighted in that joy, so confident in the Father's love that he could say, not my will, but yours be done. So confident and so happy that even in his, so joyous, even beyond his agony, he could say, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's not going great for me now, but I know there'll be joy on the other side if I commit my way to you. 
and so he could go to the cross. That's the joy that motivated Jesus. It was the driving force of his endurance. But it's not, I'm going to really grit my teeth and get through this. It's, it's he's so filled with happiness and delight and joy at what is going to come on the other side. Yes, he did come to save his sheep. Yes, he did come to show a perfect moral example to mankind. But that wasn't the driving motive. It was his delight that he would have, that he would enjoy in the presence of his loving Father. So the point of this passage in Hebrews 12 then, like the whole book of Hebrews, is to encourage all of the weary, all of the weak, all of the struggling folks who are basically tempted to quit. And, and that's, that's probably, probably a sense of where you might be. Maybe you don't want to admit it. But I know it's folks like you and me. It's a, it's a passage meant to encourage weak Christians at Easter and every day. And, and it's an encouragement then to endure. So, so then let's test this out. Let's test it out. How, how is it then possible to be, for you to be encouraged to endure by looking at Jesus? How does that work? Well, we see. It says in verse 2 in the middle, he says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so then that, that means Jesus, he experienced the suffering of God's wrath against sin at the cross. He faced the shame that accompanies that sin. But he endured the suffering and he despised the shame. In other words, it's just a different way of saying that Jesus did not give up. He could have given up at any point. He could have quit. He didn't quit. He never failed. This is so important for us to know. And, and you might sit there and you're just nodding along because you know you're supposed to. It's Easter Sunday and you're supposed to agree and you know, okay, Jesus is the hero of the story today. You know, hooray for Jesus. That's what, you know, we're all excited about. But if you're honest, and probably by tomorrow you might, you might feel like this, you'll, you'll feel like that amateur triathlete with the wobbly legs who sees the fresh professional guy effortlessly seem to pass you by. And you might think, okay, well, that's good that Jesus endured, but I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. But see, there's a clue here. There's, there's a clue here in this verse that Jesus, it shows that it gives us then this, this real hope. Jesus' joy in the Father's love guarantees his ability to bring you across the finish line. You see, in verse 2, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that means all the prerogatives, all the entitlements, all the authority, all the attributes of deity belong to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is God. To say he's at the right hand of the throne of God is an ancient way to express equality of royal status and yet maintain a distinction. And this is similar to how John 1, you know, that amazing verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equality of status and yet a distinction there. And what this means then is that Jesus has not only blazed the trail. He also has the omnipotent power to bring you to the Father in glory along the very same pathway. The same track, the same lane, the same avenue. 
the same one that he himself has run. He will bring you by no other way than the way he has gone. There is no other access. There is no other route. It is only through the way that he has gone. The narrow pathway by which he has come. But if you believe in him, he will assuredly bring you as you look to him. Now by way of just thinking about being a follower of his and just to to kind of apply this, I, I want to consider then, first off, the two pathways the two, the two roads that Jesus brings us on. They're, they're kind of the same road, but they're actually two different descriptions of the same road. Well, so the question is, and by way of a, a first application, is what trail or what pathway do followers follow when they look to Jesus? And the description of it is uh, based on that famous roadway in Jerusalem. It's called the Via Dolorosa. It's called the way of suffering. And it's known as that way of suffering because it's the route that Jesus took in bearing his cross in order to go to Calvary to be crucified. It was even at that point where Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross for him for a little bit. It's the way of suffering. Pilgrims go there to go literally walk on that pathway. That's the kind of first element of this this path that we're called to follow. It's a a street. It's It's a pathway. And yet, Jesus' spiritual way of suffering was much longer, much wider than merely that literal street in Jerusalem. And yet, he walked it. He walked it. And so must we. We must walk that spiritual via dolorosa. The difference, of course, is that he's paid all our debts and he's finished all that is required to complete the journey. So all that we have to do is look to him and to receive him as he both carries us and coaches us. But I got thinking about this It's not just the Via Dolorosa. He takes us beyond the way of suffering, even though you feel like you're in the way of suffering right now. He actually leads us beyond that, from the Via Dolorosa to the Via Gloria. He leads us actually into the way of glory. And that's the thing. We're not left to kind of, oh, I hope it's going to work out in the end. There's no open-endedness. No, you follow Jesus not just through this life, but into heaven, into glory. And he has secured that. He has both founded it and perfected the route to get you there. It is both pathways. So that's the first thing, is considering then this pathway where we are looking to Jesus the actual road race and the track upon which we're on. But the second application is this. What are the rules of this road? And it's really, really simple. It's to actually obey the command. Follow me. Follow me. It's so simple. Follow me. It's one of the most misunderstood phrases in the Bible. It's Jesus' call to follow me. He would say, take up your cross and follow me. And it's easy to think it only applied to the disciples in Jesus' day. That's what people do to this. They think, oh, it just applied to them. Or, or, or maybe at best, if you're reading it, it might be, oh, well, I want, to, I want to follow Jesus' good earthly example. That's only partly true. It's not the whole truth. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, He expects us to follow him in life, in death, through death, all the way to resurrection and glory. We keep following him. In other words, we aren't following the mere historical Jesus. We are following the living, risen 
Christ. He is risen. Just, just seeing, are you tracking here? Are you following the risen Christ? Or are you just saying the Paschal greeting? Like, that's where it comes down to. Like, did you pray to the risen living Christ today? Or are you just in this kind of nostalgia? Because that's what church is if you're not looking to the living Christ today. It's just nostalgia about good things in the past. Third and last of all of these applications, and this is the reason why I changed my sermon. Maybe you're wishing, I wish you would have changed it back, but so be it. But it's this, it's this painful real, realization that I'd like us all to consider, and I think it's probably been on your mind. Maybe you haven't articulated it this way. I've certainly thought of it a lot. I had a conversation with different people who ended up saying very similar things, and it was this, this, this admission that in our current moment, in our current experience, we realize, I have never been on this road before. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what to do next. This is all a new experience for me. I'm afraid of what comes next. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't gone through this before. Just that two years where if you didn't have that experience, well, now you have. You've, you've been forced to have that experience. And in all of this, the, the simple solution is simply looking to Jesus who calls us and he says, follow me, turn to me, believe in me. It's very simple. Looking to Jesus, then we follow him at his pace. Sometimes it's faster than we like. Sometimes it's agonizingly slower than we like. We follow him through his chosen terrain. Sometimes it's the top of the hill of difficulty, and other times it's through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't, we don't decide where it goes, but we follow him. We follow him. It's kind of like, you know, when you're following somebody home to their house, you're following them through traffic going to their house, you've never been to their house before, and, and you don't know the route that's to be traveled, well, what do you do when you follow somebody going to their house? You're right on their bumper. You're right on their bumper. And you, that's what we're called to do. We want to tailgate Jesus. Now, he might cut left, well, then we cut left. He cuts right, well, then we cut right. He speeds up, well, then we're going to catch up. He slows down, then we're going to slow it down. We won't get lost because He's leading us home. And all we do is we just look at Him. We don't look at, oh, it's getting dark, or oh, it's getting rough, or it's getting curvy, or oh, I don't, you know. It doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing. We just stay focused on his bumper. But when we do that, then we're right on his bumper. Then we start, as we look to Jesus, we start seeing more clearly the joy that was set before him. Because then the joy that was set before him is then set before us. We're right in line to see it because we see His joy and it becomes ours. Or to put it a different way, like that triathlete who stumbles 
whose legs give out. Me and my youngest son were looking at a video of a triathlete. This happened to him. He fell. Some people went by. But then there was this other runner came along. It's just like Jesus. And this guy got down and he picked the guy up and he carried the guy across the finish line. Now in that case, if you're that fallen runner, you don't look very impressive. But Jesus does. Jesus does. And we rejoice together at the finish line. You see, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection who is actually leading this whole harvest of resurrected ones. He's the first of many. He leads us in the way to glory. It's for Him, but for all of those who believe in Him. And all of us, then, with this resurrection faith, we are looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is the trailblazer and the finisher of our faith. He is alive. It is not merely the case that He was risen, but He is risen. And all the people said, He is risen indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would give us the eyes to follow hard after Christ. No matter where He goes, no matter where He leads, through the Via Dolorosa, onto the Via Via Gloria, Lord, I pray that You would bring many sons to glory. And I pray that You would begin even now, today, with some who have been Your enemies. I pray that they would repent of their crimes against you. They would turn from their sin and believe on your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and so be saved. Do this work by your powerful Holy Spirit, and we ask this in the risen Christ's name. Amen.